Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And we have a guest today. A friend of the podcast, an FOP. FOP. That's right. And this this young man um, has been categorized by most people as with using words like brilliant. Oh, yeah. Oh, my super gosh. sharp. Oh, yeah. Really smart. Mm-hmm. And this is Mr. Thomas Lakes. Thomas, welcome to the Good Judgment Podcast. Why, thank you. I was a little confused there at first. Sure <laughs> you thought we had right another place, guest, different right. guest coming in? Up here. <laughs> no, it's, it's all you, man. But the great thing about it is in comparison with Wade you're all, and me, you're all those things. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so tell the folks, you are the, well, you're several things right now. We're in several hats. Let's talk about your real job. You are the probate judge. Right. Probate judge of Harris County, Georgia. Excellent. And Harris County's county seat is? Hamilton. God, I don't know that I knew that. Did you know that, Tate? I did, because I've been to Hamilton, Georgia, you go. on several occasions. And right. and you are near Columbus? Right. We're more or less uh, considered to be a bedroom community of Columbus, uh, right to the north. In addition to the, your real job, though, you also have a different job, at least this year. Yes. Uh, I'm president of the Council of Probate Court Judges, which I understand I'm in good company right now. You are. You, I'm the president of the, of the Superior Court this year, so we, we can go down in flames together. That's right. Or succeed <laughs> That's right. together. Absolutely. Right. Right. Well, and, but those probate judges are an unruly bunch, as you know, Wayne. Yeah, that, you've got to whip <laughs> them in the line on the regular. That's right. Um, so we, we are we are excited to have you here mainly because it means we have to do less of the homework, frankly. <laughs> Amen, brother. <laughs> and uh, Thomas has prepared a great outline that you can find at goodjudgepod.com. And so you can go there and, and find the, the, some of the statutory references, but I think today we're going to have more of a chat. And Thomas, we're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about your traffic jurisdiction in probate court today, right? Absolutely. Now, Let's start off with probably there are going to be a lot of people surprised, frankly, that probate court has traffic jurisdiction. How many of your courts have uh, traffic jurisdiction? Uh, more than most people think. Uh, right now we have uh, 87 out of our 159 counties actually have uh, traffic court jurisdiction. You know the, you know who won't be surprised by that? Who? Anybody who's ever had to pay a traffic ticket in probate court. <laughs> I, I'm just talking about a friend of mine. Yeah, I'm asking for a friend. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah we get that a lot. Yeah, exactly. So we, we've talked a little bit about probate court sort of as from the um, thousand foot level, sort of mm-hmm. how it's organized and all. But let's remind our folks, because it's been a while since any of our friends from probate court have been on. Um, you are the court with we don't know what to do with it. We send it to you court. Right. That's right. Uh, we seem to be a lot of times when they're scratching their heads in the legislatures like, hmm, we've got this word court right here. Which what does that mean? Oh, oh we forgot. Probate court. We've always That's got who's probate going to do court. This. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have now... Some of your courts, and, and I'm not going to take you too far on this history lesson, mm-hmm. but some of your courts have, all of your courts have jurisdiction over probate, right? Correct. Some of your courts obviously have traffic jurisdiction. That's right. Some of them are the elections commissioners. That's right. Some of them um, handle vital records. Absolutely. And, but then again, some don't. So when, when, you are, when you're looking at probate court, you are looking at a pretty wide-ranging sort of subset or mm-hmm. subject matter jurisdictions that y'all handle. 
That's right. Uh, and a lot of it dates back to when the probate courts were um, more or less the local governing authority for the counties. Uh, they wore many hats. Uh, they took care of taxing and uh, policing and the general welfare, more or less acted like county commissioners, uh, until around um, the late 1860s when there was quite a few other things going on in the state. Uh, <laughs> past, uh, the legislature passed a legislation to allow local legislation to form elected uh, boards of commissioners. And anyone want to take a guess as to which was the first county to jump into that ring of fire? To get commissioners? Right. Um... <clears throat> In 1860-something, Savannah. Where there the, is a nice connection there, but no. Where was the capital located in 1867? Atlanta? So you would guess Fulton? Uh, that's going to be my guess. Harris County. Oh, uh, see, we should have known the home county. There you yeah. go. It was the home okay. plug. And the connection to your answer, there Wade, you is that uh, it was actually Harris County was named after a prominent lawyer in Savannah. Uh, Charles Harris, I believe, was Ooh. the namesake for Harris County. So and it all comes together. That's right. And so, Do they have a Kell County? There's not a Kell County, no. There's not a Paget County either. No. no. Got to work on that. Nor should there be. Now, to be honest with you, you have... In your outline, you've talked a little bit about some of the statutory authority for your jurisdiction. To be clear, you all, your courts, if they have traffic jurisdiction, they also have some other jurisdiction, right? Oh, absolutely. For like yeah. over some game and fish violations. Sure, sure. Um, stuff that happens at state parks. Mm -hmm. I don't. We don't have a lot of that. I don't know. We don't see a lot of those things. Yeah. Boating things. Right. Now, let's talk for a minute because this is something that some of our judges, especially coming out of this COVID pandemic, may find interesting. You have the authority by statute to hear misdemeanor marijuana cases. That's right. That sometimes might fall to some counties that have misdemeanor jurisdiction. So if they're making misdemeanor marijuana cases, they have the authority to sort of, for lack of a better word, have the officers send the citations or send the arrest paperwork to you instead of Superior Court. That's correct. I mean, uh, Superior Court has concurrent jurisdiction over those types of cases. But um, as you see from the outline, if the county has a state court, uh, then that uh, takes jurisdiction of the misdemeanor cases like misdemeanor possession of marijuana away from the probate court. But otherwise, yes, if you're in a county where it's probate court and then jump straight to Superior Court, then uh, that officer, officer could bring that type of citation, I believe, in either court. And I just want to point out to our listeners, too, there are a whole slew of uh, statutes in Title 15 in particular that, that differentiate the types of acts that, that the probate judges may have uh, jurisdiction over. And I just want to reference you, as we did a minute ago, to the outline uh, that Thomas has provided to us. It's really great that goes over uh, those statutes and tells you where you might find those <laughs> particular things about uh, statutes on of people responsible for dog ownership. I was about uh, to and say, how, God, I was about to point that out. We are so grateful. <laughs> Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I mean, that's as bad as, as the probate matters or divorces yeah, or whatever. Sometimes, really yikes. Uh -huh. <laughs> Don't you talk about my dog. Mm -hmm. um, all right, So, but you do have some limitations on the jurisdiction that you have. That's right. Can you conduct jury trials in 
criminal matters? No, not in criminal matters. does not matter whether you are a large probate court or small probate court. We do not have jurisdiction over jury trials. So people are basically going to have to waive their right to a jury trial to have, they could bench try their case. Oh, absolutely. They could file their motion to suppress, do all that stuff. Absolutely. They just can't try their case to a jury in front of the probate court. No, that's right. Uh, and for any of us to have any jurisdiction to hear any of the matters in traffic court, there's one important thing that must happen. They must waive their right to a jury trial in writing. And once we have that, then we can conduct a bench trial. We can go forward with pretty much anything in the case, just like uh, as some of my friends say in the capital J court and uh, superior court. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of the things I was interested in too is uh, the jurisdiction for those counties where the probate court has uh, this type of jurisdiction, it's only in the unincorporated areas of the county. Is that right? That's right. Uh, dating back to when, and this was just interesting here, the State Highway Patrol Act of 1937. I guess folks were getting tired of Uncle Jesse and the boys running up and down the <laughs> highways and byways and getting uh, the typical congestion we have now. So uh, it created traffic court jurisdiction for the probate courts and the municipal courts in the incorporated areas where you have a small town that has a police force, a mayor, that sort of thing. They have jurisdiction over the same offenses that happen within their city limits. So if it happens outside of um, city limits, unincorporated area, and you have no state court, then you will end up in probate court. Well, and that makes sense, too, because back in those days when the circuits, when, when judges were, you know, riding a circuit that mm -hmm. took a little longer to cover than, than maybe it does now, you know, that was a court that you could go to and get those those offenses handled more quickly than you could if you sent them to state court or, I mean, to a superior court or had, had to wait for the circuit judge to come into town and try That's those right. cases. So, all right, so we, we, we've, we've had a traffic uh, incident, citation maybe, mm -hmm. Maybe an arrest, but a citation. And we have waived our right to a jury trial in writing. Mm -hmm. So how am I going to, as I head to arraignment, am I going, is there a special charging instrument that you have to use for traffic offenses? Can you use UTCs in probate court? Um, I mean, tell them a little bit U about how uniform traffic citation. Well, <laughs> you know, it, we, I was about to talk about that because you and I have talked about Tane uniform traffic citation. So we really did have a local case where the local jurisdictions PD charged someone with murder on a traffic <laughs> ticket. <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. It's, we were like, you know what? That's just not traffic. It's just not. It's just not traffic. Neither is trafficking in cocaine, which seems odd. Are you doing like puns and stuff? <laughs> just seems like it would fit, right? Somebody's got to. Okay. So tra the, the charging instrument. Right. You, can you use the UTC and go all the way through trial on a UTC? Absolutely. And that's more or less what it was designed for, like you mentioned earlier. Uniform traffic citation, if you look at it, it serves as the uh, accusation and summons and uh, complaint uh, all in one. And also, too, if you look on the back, it actually has a place for the ultimate uh, verdict in the case. So it really is an all-in-one package uh, that for use for traffic. Now, if there's some issue with the citation, perhaps it wasn't charged correctly, maybe some wrong code section or the description is not correct, then the prosecutor can always opt to um, form an accusation, draft an accusation to make correct those errors or possibly maybe even add some other offenses to it to perfect it. So for traffic, you can use primarily the vehicle is the uniform traffic citation, but you can uh, also use accusations. You know, we've talked about this because 
you know, some of my best friends are probate judges. Some of the people <laughs> I'm married to are probate judges. <laughs> some of them. Uh, yeah, some of them. And so um, one of the things that we've talked about is using prosecutors and defense lawyers, you know, having public defenders and things like that in probate court. All of the rules that would be applicable to superior court, state court, whatever, are equally applicable. For example, people are entitled to represent themselves. They're entitled to have a lawyer. And if they can't afford one, they're, have, they're entitled to have one appointed. That's right. Uh, we use big words in probate cook too, like uh, Faretto waivers and things of that nature. So, um, yeah, so like you said, most of the things that people are familiar with in a superior court, state court, all apply in probate court uh, once you have that uh, waiver of a jury trial. Even the uh, Feeblefester case would apply oh in, uh, God, in probate not, court, right? Wayne? In particular, the Feeblefester <laughs> I, I noticed on here, too, if, if a friend of mine, uh, let's just call him Gary, uh, if he was hunting out of season, let's say, or, or, or maybe yeah, or maybe he was boating under the influence. Again, just asking for a friend here, but um, he, some of those uh, those summons and citations are also heard in the probate court. That's so, right. That's uh, exciting stuff. We actually and you have more deer killed on the highways in Harris County than any other county in, uh, in Georgia, I See, believe. See, it's true. So, he yeah. has been there. I have. Are mm-hmm. you serious? My brother-in-law lives in Manchester. So oh, well, there I, you yeah, go. I, I, yeah. know, I know of which I speak here, but uh, yeah. Well, you're talking yeah. about my in-laws family now. <laughs> you're, you're good people just automatically. I'm, now. I'm down. I'm down home. But anyway, I digress. All right. So, the the district attorney can have a role in being the prosecutor, right? Absolutely. And really, if you think about it, it makes the most sense as far as economies of scale for your district attorney to participate in a probate court. However, uh, there is an option that if the district attorney opts out of participating, uh, then he or she can make that option, and that. Uh, cr- drops it down to the next option is the probate court solicitor. Uh, The probate court can appoint one, uh, although the statute says more or less in conjunction with the county governing authority because it's always nice to have people get paid. Yeah, Yeah, Uh, they they appreciate the heck out of that. And then that person, more or less on a part-time basis, I suppose if you had a large enough jurisdiction, could be a full-time position, then they act as the uh, main prosecutor for traffic offenses in probate court. And then you have the same sort of deal, I guess, with a public defender. The circuit defender can provide the defense or there can be somebody appointed by the probate judge. Right. With the cooperation of the governing authority. This is true. Um, And one thing that you might tend to find is that the public defenders typically – well, it's kind of a broad statement, but generally you can work with them to – um, cover your court. Uh, we are very thankful that our circuit public defender has carried on with the more or less a handshake agreement uh, from years past that he was going to cover as many courts as he could because uh, he believed in that right to representation for uh, those who could not afford an attorney. And we have a great working relationship with our circuit public defender in Harris County uh, as well as our uh, district attorney right now. Um, it makes life so much easier yeah. when you don't have to wear so many hats uh, that is, as a judge. That is true. You know, we talked about that with some of our um, training of probate court judges and how, you know, there really needs to be somebody deciding which witnesses to call and what plea should be entered. And and for years and years, judges tried, because of money usually, Mm -hmm. frankly, tried not because they were trying to get away with anything. They just didn't have any money to hire a prosecutor or a defense lawyer, and it wasn't wasn't a priority for the governing authority sometimes to do that. And so they would try to be everything to everybody, and you really can't. And so having that prosecutor layer of review and having that public defender 
layer of review is very helpful to keep it to to prevent the judge from doing something inadvertently incorrect. Yeah. That's right. I mean, I think what you end up having is like like you said, the judges were doing things well intended based on all the resources that uh, they had available to them. You more or less started combining arraignment with a probable cause hearing with a mini trial and said, "Well, I'll dismiss this, I'll reduce this and all of this." And unfortunately, that's been a tradition uh, in some courts dating back a lot longer than um, you would you would think that it would. Um, but again, you know, when you have uh, counties where you have 3,000 people, what are you going to do budget-wise if you cannot convince the governing authority that uh, this is something, you know, new that's needed? Or Because uh, the bottom line is, is um, if you don't have these resources, it's not a matter of if, it's typically when are you going to put yourself in a situation where a county is going to be sued and uh, ultimately it will be the county that will pay that. So it's more or less, do you invest in it on the front end to keep that from happening, or are you just kind of roll the dice to see, well, what's it going to cost me on the back end when it eventually does happen? Sure. Absolutely. Well, the because we're dealing with misdemeanors, I mean, the, the limitations on sentencing and those sorts of things mm -hmm. are, are, are essentially the same as they would be in other courts. You've got a $1,000 fine, uh, base fine plus surcharges, and uh, up to 12 months in the county jail, and $5,000 for high and aggravated misdemeanors, those sorts of things. But let's talk about the difference in this. For example, what's the post-judgment relief? Where does this case go if, you know, if somebody wants to appeal it, what, what does it? Because some some appeals from probate court, like in civil things and different things, come to us. Right. That's de right. novo, and we got to do it again. It's like, golly, that wasn't very much help. <laughs> right. So so what, where do your appeals from traffic cases go? Well, it is unique. You mentioned de novo like in our civil jurisdiction. That's, uh, just, that's just Latin for do-over, right? That's right. De novo is like do-over. From yeah. the beginning, yeah. start over. Yeah. Um, our French. Go yeah. ahead. We Except for our Article Six courts, who are the larger courts where you appeal to the Court of Appeals. But for traffic jurisdiction, it's a little bit different. Um, unless there's an error made in the law, it's based off of the record from the lower court. So whatever facts were brought out uh, in the case below, um, the probate court certifies that record on appeal to the superior court. And if as long as there's no issue that, uh, well, you had a DUI case, but for some reason you applied um, the law for following too closely or something <laughs> or just totally just got off skew, then um, the factual record is going to be what it is. And if you don't have a law clerk, enjoy reading that uh, transcript of that trial in order to <laughs> review the record de novo. You know, Thomas, and, and you have done some work in Superior Court and before you became the, the Grand Poobah of Harris County. <laughs> and so um, you know that, that we've been talking a great deal about what's the next generation for court reporters. You know, right. what, what's that going to look like? Yeah, you can record it. But at some point, I'm just don't think I'm not thinking that our friends and colleagues and esteemed brethren on the appellate and, judges and cistern and cistern, yes. if that's a word, <laughs> are I don't think they're going to be back and forth with CDs like listening for minute thirteen thirty one when the judge said no. I, I don't think I don't see them doing that. Yeah, it's a totally different dynamic. I think one of my first cases, oddly enough, that I handled when I was clerking was an appeal from one of our traffic courts in our circuit. And you're right. You're listening through, and then you're trying to hit the stop and go back and what was said there. Um, I think in some ways, uh, so far as this you know, progression here towards um, possibly just doing, you know, somebody hitting a button and that being your court transcript, I guess probate courts have been a little ahead of the curve. I mean, we we're required to have a verbatim record and paper record uh, on file for at least two years, and that's part of our uniform rules. 
Um, so, so a verbatim record means a recording. I mean, right. mm-hmm. not to be stupid, but it means a recording. Sure. Mm-hmm. And a paper record, meaning all of the stuff you signed and, right. and dated. Okay. So you don't have to. Tr- you don't necessarily have to transcribe all of those recordings. You've got to hold them for at least two years because that's probably the, the appellate jurisdiction. Yeah. And one thing to keep in mind, unless this has changed, you always you know risk of one dangerous thing is quoting outdated law. But we um, wouldn't know anything about that, would we? <laughs> <laughs> Disclaimer. Yeah. But there's, you know, there's been issues with trying to figure out, you know, what has to be, uh, t- what's the difference between takedown and what's the difference between transcribed. That was a big project in our circuit some years ago, mm-hmm. and I can remember a case that when I was clerking with, it was a hunting over bait case in one of the counties that had gotten appealed up to um, Superior Court. Or actually, it wasn't appealed. I think it was actually had been charged there. Um, originally, uh, there were other charges mixed up in it that got it there. And so the fellow wanted to go to trial. Well, once we pointed out, based on all that research, that um, unless somebody requests it, uh, it's on the defendant to pay for the transcript for the misdemeanor uh, trial, that hmm. ended up going to be way more than what the fine was for <laughs> the actual offense. And so miraculously, that one settled out of court. He, he wanted to use that well-known Georgia defense, that doe needed killing. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. <laughs> that doe needed killing. <laughs> Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane, and you're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web. As always, you can find our outlines for these podcasts, as well as supplemental materials, on our website at goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcasts at our email at goodjudgepod at gmail.com, and we're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcasting platform. And tell all your friends. Thanks. And now back to our studios. All right. So you have a you have a good bit in your outline about sort of the appellate process mm-hmm. and, and, and how things like the same concepts of habeas corpus and the same concepts of motion for new trial kind of sure. apply. So if you don't mind, though, I want to talk about some things that have come up that I think that that may be more common that most of us talk about mm-hmm. a good bit. For example, in in our one of our counties, Columbia, the, the probate court handles the traffic. Mm-hmm. And so in that county, an officer writes a ticket for speeding. I don't know. I'm just sure. coming up with a scenario. But during the process, finds um, cocaine. Mm-hmm. And so they they write the uniform traffic citation for the speeding offense, and then they write the warrant and get mm-hmm. the judge to sign a warrant for the arrest for cocaine possession. Those tickets, theory, in theory, should go to two different places, right? I mean, you, you, you know what I'm saying? Because the probate court doesn't have jurisdiction over the felony drug. Right. And the felony court does have jurisdiction over the traffic. But in theory, I think clerks and, and people who work in sheriff's offices and maybe probate courts, mm-hmm. they would be looking for the traffic citation that came from case number one, two, three. Okay. Yeah. But there's some problems with that if it gets heard on the traffic citation and nobody has either jurisdiction or ability to hear the drug case, or 
Do you know what I'm talking about? Right, absolutely. And I think uh, let's well, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, um, and it may be just one good rule of thumb that you could kind of distill that down to to make it simple with uh, not having to. We like simple. Scour yes. through all the various cases and statutes, but that the rule of thumb there is if you have one court that has jurisdiction over all of the offenses, go to that court. If you're you know, writing up the, the charging instruments, and you're like, well, this one can go on a UTC, but this one I'm going to have to get a warrant. Well, which court could handle all of them? And generally that's going to be superior. Superior. superior that's superior, right. Superior. Um, sometimes it could be your state court. Yeah. Or state court. Sure. sure, sure. Um, but, um, but yeah, generally that's the rule there because what you run into is a double jeopardy issue. Say that scenario that you mentioned there, Wade, where you have the speeding ticket and the drug charge and it, the speeding ticket takes its normal course right there. It's transmitted over to the probate court while the drug charge is just kind of marinating there through the warrant process and doing what it needs to do. Maybe it hasn't even been um, served yet. Maybe they haven't even actually went out and you know got that defendant. In the meantime, defendant sees that uh, he's got a ticket there for the speeding, goes online and pays it. Well, that uh, creates an issue there because if it's all wrapped up in the same transaction, the same set of facts, the same issue, then that case is done. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could create some problems, especially what if you had something a lot uh, more serious? Maybe you had that murder charge that was with that UTC, and mm-hmm. somehow that UTC slipped through the cracks and went through probate court and said, well, I'll pay that $15 seatbelt ticket. Could be an issue. Um, and it has been. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we've actually talked about some appellate cases where that really has happened. And, and luckily, I think they talk about jurisdiction. They mm-hmm. talk about the actual knowledge of the prosecutor right. with jurisdiction right. over the case. And that, I think, you know, believe it or not, I think that has had some impact on why some DAs didn't necessarily want to serve as the prosecutor in probate court sure. so that they didn't have knowledge, and I'm using air quotes, mm-hmm. of the pending offense. And so that way they had somebody else they could use as a buffer just in case one yeah. got through the, the sieve. So yeah. that they so that they wouldn't have a problem with what the late great Alex Trebek would have called double jeopardy. <laughs> wow. You worked hard for that joke. <laughs> I was listening for the rim so, shot. I know. Yeah, we, we, we got that. We, we, add those those later. Later. we add those in later. <laughs> All right. Um, can you accept a NOLO plea in probate court? Absolutely. We can't accept the no-low plea. But you can't, nobody can accept one. Well, I guess you can accept one for a DUI. You can. It doesn't have uh, much it, value. It, it seems like what's probably happened is that uh, somebody caught on to that and did a legislative fix. Because if you look in the, the code section there, basically flat out says uh, no-low contingency will not affect anything so far as the sentencing goes with the DUI. It's not going to save a suspension or anything of that nature with a DUI. But yes. Tane, do you get many people that have the super speeder fines that all your friends from church and the neighborhood, <laughs> that's the time they they call you? Junior's got a super speeder. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I just always go, wow, <laughs> that's really fast in that jurisdiction. So, yeah, I mean, yeah never do, much help to them on that. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how many people become your friends when somebody they know or care about has a ticket, as you well know, I'm sure. Absolutely. The famous ex parte communication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, can a NOLO plea save you from a super speeder fine? No, as though, but many folks uh, think that it can. Uh, the NOLO has no effect on the super speeder part of it. It could help you with the underlying points that would be associated with that speeding offense. So say you got 
uh, a super speeder find like a really basic one would be say 85 into 70 because super speeder works if you're over 85 miles per hour on any road or 75 or 85 or above or 75 miles per hour or more on a regular two-lane highway so in that instance there you'd have the super speeder going into effect say you pled no low well that would save you maybe the underlying two points on that uh, fine but you're still going to get that letter from the state of georgia and i remind people the state of georgia on the <laughs> super <right>. speeder uh, <laughs> fine in addition to whatever your local jurisdiction applies um, they will get in touch with you on that and then your insurance company will find oh, you yeah. and mm-hmm. they'll they'll quit getting in touch with you shortly after yeah, that yeah, exactly they will cut all communications with you yeah but no lows are an interesting animal um, it's always in the court's discretion whether to accept a low no low contendere. Um, I don't know if you want to get into this now sure, or just sure, to have, sure. have it, uh, but there's certain odd um, offenses in traffic court world that sometimes we get the calls downstairs uh, when one has been sent upstairs about how does this work again? How long can you use it? Um, different rules. Uh, generally, a five year period going back to that speeding ticket, uh, generally moving violations, Department of Driver Services, DDS will recognize a no low to keep points from coming off the record keep points from going on the record once every five years. Um, Mm -hmm. Now you get into a little more tricky things, like say with a suspended license under um, 45-121, six-month suspension, unless um, you have not used it in a five-year period. You get to use that once, a no-low in a five-year period, could save you the six-month suspension. If you've used it and you get another one and then another one, you're looking at that six-point suspension. And if you get a fourth in five years, it's a felony. Then mm-hmm. you get to come see you guys. Yay. Mm-hmm. Um, another squirrely one is uh, driving without proof of insurance. or um, You have to use that one, a no-low, on your first offense in five years. So say maybe you didn't know about that trick to save the 60-day suspension and you try to use it on offense number two that comes with a 90-day suspension. Well, you're out of luck on that one. Uh oh. Um, and then Uh-oh. suspended registration kind of ups the ante a little bit more. You can use it to save the 120 day suspension. Again, all over the board on these number of days of suspensions. But if you've had another mandatory suspendable offense within the past five years, like a DUI or one of these other offenses here, then DDS won't apply it. So um, you have to be familiar with looking at, uh, you know, uh, criminal history if you're at the sentencing phase to make sure uh, that that's going to be an issue. Um, overall, I think the saving grace for us is that I think all of this amounts to a collateral issue. I don't know that you have to inform the defendants of it. I find that it's good practice to do that. Uh, from it's, better, bi- it's better at election time? <laughs> well, absolutely. Um, but the buyer's remorse part of it, whenever DDS kicks in, and you know, a month or so later, like, what happened here? Why was my license suspended? Oh, yeah. They don't want to hear big words like collateral consequences. Mm-hmm. And I don't so, have to tell you that. <laughs> right. Well, I will say, too, for, for our Superior Court judge listeners out there, too, I mean, these are things that we don't deal with on a regular basis, and particularly these issues that come up with respect to NOLO pleas. Mm-hmm. Um We'll have a lot of lawyers who, you know, it, it, it gets to be the fourth and five, and, and they're lawyers who practice in our traffic court across the street a lot, and they come over and start throwing concepts at us that, you know, we don't deal with very often. So sure. I'll, just, I'll just caution you. There's some, you know, some great statutory stuff laid out in the outline to be sure and look at when one of those things pops up because there's some, there's some weird, you know, quirky things yeah. that ha- deal with us that we don't see very often. I mean, you know, we do have, in all honesty, though, we do get some – some 
felony or some felony charges or whatever that include a maybe a felony driving on suspended license mm-hmm. that the person just has been suspended since they were 18 years old they're now 43 right. and they finally <laughs> have figured out a way to get his license his or her license reinstated but we know that this plea to driving on a suspended license a guilty plea would resuspend that person and that doesn't seem 100% what we're trying to accomplish when there's not under other underlying offenses and other problems and all that. Right. So knowing that you can use a no low once in five mm-hmm. is probably helpful for us to I, I just honestly had did not did not think about that. I probably knew it at some point but I didn't think about that when I'm hearing these people that have just been career suspended drivers right. licenses people. Right. And they haven't used a no low in five years. So that's very helpful. Now, let's talk about, the, I guess, somewhat the converse of that. You're talking about collateral consequences. Let's talk about some of these that don't allow for anything other than a fine. That's right. That's a little bit of a pitfall there. Um, you have to go to and look at the specific code section. It's, as you know, looking up things that can be all over the board. Sometimes you have in the, um, the lead part of a statute that says anything under this article is uh, to be sentenced as a misdemeanor. Um, and some have it specifically in their code section, like like these here, the 45-121 for suspended license. It's it's there in that code section about what the fine range is. But take one like the seatbelt uh, we mentioned earlier. Oh, this is the bane of my existence. <laughs> $15 fine. No add-ons, no surcharges, no jail times, just a straight fine. Um, so typically, um, you know, in the Superior Court world, your clerks are kind of charged with knowing more about that. Um, but you get others like uh, open container violation. It's another one that's just a straight fine, no jail. Where that comes into issues with sentencing, and some people may gloss over it, think you're, I don't know, if you look at probation as doing somebody a favor, it's like, well, I'll just add another 12 months here. You know, say you got the DUI and the open container. Well, it'd probably be easier for this person to do this in 24 months than it would be to take care of, you know, a third and five and you know, with that fine and 240 mm-hmm. hours community service in one year. Right. But you can't do that because that is the, you have to make sure that other uh, charge actually allows for jail time. Does this happen to you? Like where you have an open container, a seatbelt, uh, what, what some people might call the probable cause charge. Right. <laughs> and, and you've got all these other big things, and you just do another 12 months probation. Everybody kind of looks at you like, well, you, you can't really do that. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we see that come up, and, and we're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but then, then why don't you just dismiss it? Right. Because we've got, you know, you know yeah. 10 years in prison followed by 10 years on probation and a $25 fine for this, pal. Right. Yeah. That's going to yeah. get your attention. Uh-huh. And you better pay it, too. You better pay it, pal. <laughs> Once you get out of your five years in prison. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, um, some offenses actually don't allow for surcharges. Yeah, you just mentioned that's that right. That's another you know added bonus of having to read the fine print, um, and they all have some very strong language. No add-on surcharges, tax, whatever added to this uh, charge here. So you can say that was heavily lobbied. Whenever those particular exactly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so explain to people because for some of us who you know kind of tangentially touch traffic cases this is going to be very helpful because this is some of the things we we may know some obvious things but some of these we may not know what's a zero point order 
that is something that can be very helpful for uh, folks. I use it typically a lot with uh, younger drivers to help take points off their licenses. I will say... You're really helping their parents when you that's right. That. you know that's that, right? right. <laughs> um, but to that point there, if you're under 21, kind of just a little preface to that, um, using the NOLOs and things that we mentioned earlier sometimes won't help that under 21 driver. Uh, if they get a four-point offense all at one time and they're under 21, that's a suspendable offense. That's a six-month suspension, although you have the option as the sentencing judge to allow for a limited permit for work, school, medical appointments, and that sort of thing. So there are limits to NOLOs when it comes to uh, folks who are under 21. Um, going back to your point about the uh, zero point order, what it's designed to is if it's in the statute that if you complete a driver, uh, a Department of Driver Services approved defensive driving course, that's the key because if they're approved, then they get to print out a fancy certificate with a DDS logo and a certificate number that DDS will accept. Then the code allows for DDS to accept a zero point order from the sentencing court that takes away up to seven points off of that person's record. And um, allows also, too, many folks don't know, a 20% reduction in the fine amount. Oh, wow. Um, sometimes I go above that, again, if it's a younger driver and all, but it's actually in the code section. And the way it's worded, uh, I mean, you know, the commas and the ors, it talks about if they bring it to court ahead of time to kind of re reward people for doing something ahead of time. But I mm -hmm. think there's some leeway in the language that you can also do that after the fact, too, if you make that okay, come back in 30 days, show me proof that you've done this, and I'll uh, enter the zero point order. So again, very helpful to the parents whenever that yeah. happens. Um, so that's Do you tool. actually enter an order? You can. There is an order that you can enter. A lot of the case management systems uh, will pre-print it. I have some that I use used on my own before I had a case management system that did it. Now I will say with the one we use now, you can just click the button for zero point order and our case management system electronically sends it to DDS and they accept it. They take it on the goodwill of the court, I guess, that you have entered it and it meets the requirements. And so we keep the uh, certificate on file so that we have it, but that just is another evolution of making things quicker and, and easier. Um, but the zero point orders, again, another one of those that you can use every five years. Um, so you're kind of at the mercy of whether DDS will catch it or not if you try to enter multiple zero point orders. So, Tane. Yes. Somebody has a criminal case in your court. Frequently. They don't show up. <laughs> yes. Frequently. Frequently. What is, what is your sort of first move? Bench warrant. Okay. Have them arrested. Yeah. Thomas. Yes. Somebody has a criminal case, a traffic case, mm -hmm. in your court. They don't appear. What is your – can you just issue a bench warrant? It's according to what the range of punishments are for that particular offense. Uh, for your run-of-the-mill speeding ticket, something that where it does not carry a suspension. That's kind of the key. So typical speeding charge will not carry a suspension. Uh, two, three years ago maybe, uh, legislation was passed uh, – to where now we send out what's basically called a courtesy 30-day letter to say, hey, you missed your court date, uh, you have 30 days to contact the court to either pay your fine, set a court date, dispose of your case, what have you. That person doesn't respond in that 30 days. And granted, we're sending it to the address that's on this uniform traffic citation, so good luck that that's correct. Mm -hmm. um, and if they do not respond, we then forward it to DDS, who then begins the suspension process. 
Now, if it is an offense that carries uh, a suspension for a first-time offense, like a driving while license suspended, uh, which those DUI, DUI, and yeah. also too, those tend to generate a criminal history. Mm-hmm. On, uh, then you can go the superior court route and do the bench warrant. On. If there has been, I believe, where they uh, revised the bond statute in that same legislative session, mm-hmm. as long as there has been a court notice sent to them of what the court date is and the idea not relying on the ticket right oh okay do you do that do you send out a court notice um, or do you rely on the first hearing on tickets um let's see if i think if you all right let me back up i think if on the 30-day letter if you had sent the notice you may not have to send the 30-day notice but if it's a suspendable offense it takes it out of that arena there for the 30-day letter and i think you can go the bench warrant route and see all what he was talking about was a part of the criminal justice reform mm-hmm. led by justice right. boggs yep. a few years ago that some of it we presiding, thought more presiding justice pre- boggs. sorry That's presiding right. justice yes. boggs that some who of we who we really like, by we, the way, we, and we he always is, has so much power. Oh my gosh, he is so smart too. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but no, seriously, he he um, we kind of gush over our yeah. appellate judges uh, always <laughs> because they grade our papers. Go ahead, um, <laughs> and because they're really smart. No, they're super yeah. smart. And so we, this was a part of that that effort that that we really thought there was going to be a lot of changes on bail. There were going to be a lot mm-hmm. of changes that were really heavily discussed but didn't really materialize. But this is one that did, that you don't issue bench warrants for failure to appear for the run-of-the-mill traffic cases. You've got to go one more step and give them another 30 days. No, no, seriously, we're serious about this. You've got to handle it. It's the pretty please letter. It's the pretty please letter, (laughs) exactly. And actually, to jump on that, uh, they actually get, in theory, a little bit more time. Unless this has changed, I have not heard anything different. Um, So I was understanding it. Under a normal FTA suspension where you send it in. Failure to appear. Failure to appear. FTA. Sorry. Thank you. Um, DDS gives 28 days. They send a letter and say, you respond in 28 days or else your license will be suspended. I think the idea when this 30-day letter uh, law went into effect, you had the 30 days, and then the way it was written is that within five days of the court then notifying DDS, DDS was to suspend the license. DDS, I think, interpreted that all that does is kick in their normal process for them to give them an additional 28 days. So in theory, if you take it all the way out to the end of the 35th day, plus the 30 days, notify them, they send a 28-day letter, you're looking at, uh, what's that math-wise, 63-ish days, 60 days that they have. So That's a lot. Yeah. That's a pretty, 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 pretty With sugar on top. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Sugar on top. (laughs) All right, so Thomas, um, you have the uh, incredible opportunity and 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 wonderful benefit of working with a true FOP, and that's uh, Kevin Holder. Oh, absolutely. Kevin is is one of our unsung heroes here, and he's exactly. going to be so mad we talked about him. <laughs> but um, he it's has the power of the microphone. That's right, Wade. exactly. And Thomas is always a good co-conspirator, so yeah. um, I've seen evidence of that a couple of times at their <laughs> seminars already. But Thomas, uh, say a little bit about what Kevin means as being the executive director of the probate council. Oh my gosh, a free opportunity to talk about Kevin Holder. Uh, <laughs> what do you do with this opportunity? <laughs> I don't think uh, you will find anybody in our ranks that has anything but the most just abundant praise to leap on Kevin Holder. Um, that's been one of the best things that could have happened to our class of court is to get 
that extra layer of assistance there to have an executive director in our council. It frees up everybody else to focus on more specific things to get initiatives uh, passed while he is in the background doing all the things that matter, keeping us organized. I mean, I can't imagine what this job would be like of being the council president without a Kevin Holder there to um, not only just to remind you, hey, this is coming up, but for just the things that he does and he cares. He is so super smart and talented that uh, I think each person that rolls into this job in leadership, it's like, you know, can you just stay one more year? You know, I don't care what happens to the one that comes behind me, but can you just stay one more year? Being so, the president of my council, I can really appreciate that. Yeah, y'all yeah. start that next year. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Kevin Holder is a godsend. He is just, uh, I just, and I can't do enough. It's something that renders you speechless when you try to pick out well, where do you start first with Kevin Holder. He is amazing. He is um, just uh, a tremendous human being outside of what he does for us as our uh, executive director, and we just could not be more fortunate to have him. Well, on here on the podcast, he he, re, he refuses to ever let us give him any praise. But <laughs> from the very beginning, Tane, he was the guy who understood how to take these recordings that Stephen Turner makes makes special. Yeah, lemons out of lemonade. Yep, <laughs> and he gets them published. I don't know how that happens. It's magic. It's just a magical power that he has, and no one understands it. But and, it just and, is. But he does that just for giggles. I mean, you know, he he doesn't do that as a part of his job. He doesn't yeah. do that for pay. He just does it because he's a great human being, and and he's magic. And he, he is. is oh magic. yeah, I forgot. And he's magic. Yeah, exactly. So anyway, um, thank you for being here. Um, it is an honor. We've we've met several of our probate friends <laughs> in this process, and being able to expand this to other classes of court, I think, really proves valuable. Tay, tell tell everybody about what happens usually to our listenership. Yeah. Every time we uh, do a, a podcast on a subject that includes probate court, uh, we, we usually get about uh, a third more listeners than we <laughs> normally get, which means our friends in probate are tuning in. Absolutely. So we really appreciate them and we really appreciate you being here with us today. And I've learned a lot, too, uh, about uh, about some of these things that I didn't know that probate Absolutely. courts did across the state of Georgia. and. When you're on your way back to Harris County, watch out for deer on 185. Oh, that is that. really, it's like a war zone down there. Deer yeah. are just jumping in front of cars. It is. And I'll, right. try not to, I'll try not to fail to maintain lane or strike a fixed object <laughs> on the way back. Um, <laughs> but if you hit a deer, I think you can now harvest the deer uh, oh, when, you, yeah. when you run over it on All right, Saturday. all right, all right, you two. <laughs> I would be Enough. remiss here. I am going to interject here talking yeah. about praise to have you two guys here. Uh, I just cannot thank the both of you enough for the support that you have given the probate courts in general. I mean, I literally have the man who wrote the book here with us here in Wade Pageant in That's our right. uh, traffic manual that is just incredibly helpful. Uh, I say manual, that seems to kind of just kind of dilute it a bit. Legal treatise, anything yeah, that has over a thousand footnotes, I don't exactly. think um, you can really say it's just a manual. And um, just can't leap enough praise on you and your support that you have for us. And uh, Judge Kell, your creativity in helping us in our um, uh, training seminars and just the, the love that you give us, I can't thank you enough. This right here has been a little humbling for me to kind of be in the presence of you guys, Whatever. especially talking about traffic of we all things. We love it. But no, we love it. Well, Wade, Wade loves probate judges so much that, he that married, I married, that he married, married one. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's his. But well, look, out of the Mutual Admiration Society, we will uh, give our listeners a break. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. And until next time, a little lime juice will keep an avocado fresh.
Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Men Podcast.